Hey, it's Ron, and I am really excited to bring you this very special two-part episode with three of my fellow departed co-founders of The Lincoln Project. I don't want to give anything away, so we'll just jump into this first part of the conversation right now. The second half of this special is available exclusively for Politicology Plus subscribers. And if you're not yet subscribed to Politicology Plus, you can do that right now and unlock the second half, as well as lots of other content, at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'm really excited for today's conversation because I have three of my fellow co-founders of The Lincoln Project with me today. Conservative attorney George Conway, former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, Jennifer Horn, political strategist Mike Madrid. And I just want to start by marking the moment because this is the first time Mike and Jennifer have met George in person. It's also George's debut on Politicology, and it's the first time ever we four departed co-founders have physically been in the same room at the same time. So George, Jennifer, Mike, thank you all for being here. Thank you for your friendship, and welcome to Politicology. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. It's good to be, to be here. here yeah. So each of us had taken our own unique path that led to the formation of the Lincoln Project, converging in December of 2019, with full awareness that those paths might ultimately diverge after the election was over and Trump was out of power and the mission was accomplished. We had hoped that a resounding defeat would be an unmistakable repudiation of Trumpism, that nebulous term that has come to be used as a stand-in for all of the cumulative evils of perhaps the most dangerous malignant narcissist in American political history his pursuit of power for his own glorification, and the horrific abuses of that power that would shake the very foundation of our democratic experiment. Unfortunately, as we know, that repudiation did not happen. We defeated Donald Trump at the ballot box, but he still wields formidable power over the Republican Party, and by virtue of its domination of state legislatures, most of the lawmaking that matters in most people's day-to-day lives. Moreover, America is now plagued by a swarm of performative politicians, each vying for their own fistful of the populist power he showed them how to wield. And all of that is to say nothing of the ravaging pandemic that has killed over half a million Americans and laid bare many of the festering problems we had for so long collectively either denied or ignored, failing to summon the political will to address them. As a country, As a civilization, and the four of us as individuals, we are in a very different place than we were when we embarked on that mission at the end of 2019. So I want to spend a little bit of time taking stock of each of those personal journeys leading into and now out of 2020. But then I want to take a really broad and thoughtful look at the future, where the Republican Party is today, where it might be going, where it should go where our politics writ large might be going, where democracy is going, maybe even be as audacious as to explore whether and how the very system of American government itself might need to evolve and adapt to survive what we now recognize as potentially fatal vulnerabilities. And ultimately, how Politicology listeners, many of whom have been with us since the beginning of the Lincoln Project podcast, can 
effectively engage in this fight. So our paths converged in late 2019. Can you all talk about what led you to that point in 2019 when you signed on to the Lincoln Project? George, do you want to start us off? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll briefly summarize it. I mean, it was just a it was a two-year, two-plus year journey of first, you know, being supportive of the guy in the hope that, you know, he would be something relatively normal, not perfect, but normal too. What the hell is wrong with this guy? To wow, he's really bad. Then to he's a danger to the republic, and God help us if he gets reelected, and we got to do something about it. I mean that that's basically the the sequence of events. I mean I know a lot of other people were you know saw exactly how bad he was from the beginning. Turned out he was worse than they said. <laughs> so that that's my journey. I mean in, in a nutshell. I mean I could probably. Talk for two hours about it, but it yeah. wouldn't be worth it at this point. It's it's been a long journey. Jennifer, what about you? Mine was longer than yours, for <laughs> sure. Um back in 2011, when the 2012 race was heating up, Donald Trump came to New Hampshire mm -hmm. to, you know, dip his toes in the water and had you know, one that was essentially his his one actual covered, you know, pre-campaign visit. Um, and a lot of people in New Hampshire were very excited about it. Donald Trump was coming and was he going to get in the race? And, you know, um, I was not chairman yet at that time, but there, you know, folks who were inside the party were kind of vying for who gets to greet him, who gets to, you know, take him around that day, that kind of thing. And I wrote an op-ed for the union leader saying, if the Republican Party takes him seriously, they deserve what they get. And mm. he has turned out to be much, much, much more damaging than I even imagined at that time. Um, and I was a consistent vocal voice uh, of that message throughout the 2016 race. I never took sides in, the, in any race uh, when I was chairman including this one. I never took sides, but I f was frequently confronted with questions from the press about something he had done, something he had said, you know, what does this mean? What, what do you think? Um, and so I reached a point where I had to start choosing between, was I going to defend the principles of republicanism or was I going to defend a politician? And it was an easy choice for me. You know, every time I would defend the principles and I would always try to be careful to phrase my responses and what I said through that filter. But I made a conscious choice also not to be quiet, mm -hmm. not to I could choose not to answer a question. I could have chosen to, um, you know, just, you know, let the, let the whole thing kind of unfold outside of, out, you know, outside of my circle. But um, it reached a point, you know, fairly early on in that race where everything that I had thought a few years before that, you know, in 2011, that could be could be wrong, was was minor compared to what his what he was clearly revealing himself to be. Mike, well, my trajectory, I think, might even go back a little further than that. Um, you know, I've, I've always had sort of, I guess, uh, in retrospect, and again, the last few months, I think, have been very kind of cathartic for looking back and kind yeah. of assessing um, sort of this tenuous relationship between my area of study and interest and how I grew up as a you know young Latino kid in California and kind of the party that I loved, the conservative beliefs that I still hold to this day, 
at a party that was, again, continually changing kind of before my own eyes, certainly in California. And that change was happening as as the complexion, literally the complexion, the demography of the state was changing, then the Southwest was changing. And ultimately, I think Donald Trump's rise embodies this, this change that's happening nationally. And so this conflict between this rising isolationism, populism, nativism, which I think is in direct conflict to conservatism, starts to really consume the party. And I think the moment, you know, I remember when when Donald Trump, of course, comes down the escalator and I think my first reaction was I was embarrassed because for so many years I had been saying this is not who we are as a party. Like, no, this there, there's some of that is in the dark shadows of conventions. Um, but here was somebody who was brash and open and saying these things um, and giving it oxygen. And then I was kind of shocked and surprised at how much he was gaining traction and support. And then he would say things about John McCain where you're like, okay, this is it. This is I mean, you can't say that. Like you can't, yeah. you can't pop politics, you can't say that. It's over. The campaign's over. And then he would get stronger. And then I realized uh the the final emotion I think I got was anger, which is okay, this is this is this is a betrayal. Yeah. This is a betrayal of everything that I have spent my entire adult life and professional career working to build, putting my credibility on the line to advocate for people, uh, candidates, causes. That um, that really are what I have been saying that they aren't, and then you start to lose friends, and then you start to lose professional colleagues, mm-hmm. and then you start to lose business, and then you start to realize, wait a second, this is this is barreling down a road that is getting very dangerous. And so I started speaking out very very early. The moment he came down, I was you know publicly very publicly saying this is a problem and. Then Politico started characterizing me as the most anti-Trump Republican voice on the West Coast, and I was happy to wear that, and I thought, I'm waiting for people to kind of come and follow, and very, very, very few did, if any mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I um, I got a call. I got a call from Reed and said, hey, there's this group of courageous people willing to do this, and you ready to go? And I said, you know, sign me up. Let's go. Let's ride. And um, – and so that was kind of my journey to getting there. 2016 wasn't, for me, the catalyst. It was the straw that broke the camel's back because at that point, I had been going through years of deconstructing both a fundamentalist um, religious upbringing as well as the the conservative, uh, the, the republicanism I inherited and then had begun to work in for 15, 17 years at that point. And, um, and Donald Trump, when he came down the escalator, but ultimately when he got the nomination, that was my breaking point, the nomination, because up until then through the primary process, I watched lots of people, especially lots of consultants that I admired, respected, tell, you know, tell me like, no, there's, there's no way he's not going to get the nomination. It just can't happen, right? There's 17 people running for office. One of them, one of the, one of the normal people, you know, will get it. Um, so when that didn't happen, that was my breaking point. But up until that point, I'd been, I've been doing a lot of um, discovering, shall we say, about the, the, the way the National Party actually worked and its purpose uh, of existing, which isn't really to represent 
a cohesive set of values or principles, that's uh, that's a tactic. Um, it's a tactic to win. So when I started to learn more about how the things that had become enshrined in the platform of the Republican Party really only existed there because of, as I called it at Cooper Union, a cynical electoral calculation designed to manipulate the electoral math, which worked, they became gospel and became, this is what we believe. And it was sort of communicated to voters writ large that there's some kind of underlying ideology or philosophy behind these things. But actually, while conservatism is a cohesive ideology, the republicanism really is nothing more than a set of things that worked in the past to win electoral victories. So when Donald Trump came down and won the nomination, for me, it was a it was recognition that actually winning was all that mattered. And it wasn't just to him, it was to the party. Winning ultimately was all that mattered, and that actually was the purpose of the Republican Party. And so my problem was I couldn't forsake everything else that I believed in for victory, because I don't think you get to call that a victory, right? So that brings us to Cooper Union. And there's uh, a now, you know, very famous Abraham Lincoln quote, um, but there's one piece of it that I want to zoom in on because it really underscores, I think, all of the fight of 2020. And Abraham Lincoln at his Cooper Union address, February 27th, 1860, uh, we, we each stood on a stage together. George, you couldn't make it. We're very sad that you couldn't be there. In honor of that moment, you know, 160 years after at the same podium that Lincoln said, let us have faith that right makes might. And in that faith, let us to the end dare to do our duty as we understand it. But there's a piece of that quote, I think that goes under noticed, which is the have faith part, right? He doesn't say unequivocally that right makes might. It's not a magic bullet standing up to do the right thing. He says, let us have faith that right makes might. And in that faith, meaning we will choose to believe this thing and we will fight in that way. Let us dare to do our duty as we understand it. And so that's what I want to spend a little bit of time on because I talked to Catherine Sanderson, George, uh, thank you for that introduction. She's just wonderful. I talked to her a couple of months ago about moral rebels, right. people who stand up for what they believe in uh, for what they believe is right, even if it means they might be ostracized for it, which I think is something we can all relate to. So can you talk about how you made that decision? What motivated you to do that? The consequences that you ultimately suffered for that? And I guess this is sort of like when you knew you had to state publicly and definitively that you could not vote for Donald Trump. Because it's not just a like, I arrived at this decision internally, right? There's a, there's a George, you more than anyone know this. Uh, there's a big difference between arriving at that conclusion internally and then deciding you have to do something public to represent that internal decision. Right. Yeah. What was that like for you? Well, I mean, it was a process. It was a, it was a long process. I mean, I started out in 2016, not supporting Donald Trump. He was very near the bottom of my list of candidates. I mean, I kind of liked that he was, um, I, I wasn't a big fan of Jeb Bush, 
because I did think he was a little too squishy, although he looks <laughs> really good now. Um, I, I didn't yeah. mind that he was taking on. I didn't find squishy. But, right, like exactly. I mean, you know, uh, uh, you know, please applaud. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but he's a good man. I mean, that's, a, that, I mean, now he, well, he gets a lot more points from now for just being a good, a good man. And, and, but at the time it was like, okay, we've had two bushes already. We can't, yeah. let's, let's do something else. And I didn't mind the fact that he was taking out you know, that element of the establishment. Yeah. Of course, I didn't realize that the combination of his um, television celebrity and the way that the Republicans so brilliantly um, stacked the deck um, so that if you won the early primaries, then you basically, were, it was winner take all yeah. almost all the way out yeah. and basically stacked the deck in favor of whoever got the earliest victories That's in right. a 17-person field. Mm -hmm. And then you had John Kasich, not, you know, pulling out when he could have. And, you know, I know every, you know, Cruz doesn't look so great right now, but he would have been a lot better. Um, you know, I, I didn't I didn't support him, but at the end it was like, okay, it was, okay, this guy versus Hillary. And he's not great, but he's got to get better, was my thinking. And, you know, when he was, and he's probably going to lose. And, you know, and, and, and obviously, you know, my wife joined and it was like, I wanted her to be successful. And, and when he was elected, my thinking was, well, you know, there's something about the office. The office brings out the best in a lot of people. It brings – because you go and you realize it's not just about – you know, these – we – all politicians to some yeah. great extent are narcissistic. Yeah, it's um, a different breed. But then, you yeah. know, and you have to be to, to, to want to put yourself out there and be president in the United States. There's, there's a lot of – you know, you, you, you have to be kind of self-focused and – and egotistical. And so that didn't make him any different than, than a lot of people, at least if you just, you know, it's the question of degree ultimately. So I figured, you know, the, the, he, he's kind of, you know, there are going to be these cringeworthy moments. Oh God, why did I say that? But he's going to get better. He's going to get better because he's going to realize the office, is, the office is about the country. It's about something more than him. And that you know, he'll have good people around him. People around him. Right. Which was – Right. I, and and yeah. it's – you know, the problem is it's always about him. And that drives good people away. And he, get, he gets rid of you if you're a good person. He gets rid of you if you, if you don't, if you don't tell you what – you, you, yeah. you, you know, if you don't tell him what he wants to hear. And now he's made everybody bad. And everybody, you know, like that, everybody's bad now because they realize oh, the way to, to political success is to just lie. And then obviously we don't want to hear the things that we don't want to hear. I mean, exemplified by we were talking about this before um, this this uh, recording that we were talking about the the fact that the NRCC mm. polling data that was presented presented to a House caucus um, House House retreat, you know, excluded the bad information that they didn't want the members to hear about you know Donald Trump's underwater approval ratings. I mean, you know, it's now we've reached this. He's it's it was he was you know he he. I, I thought he was a normal relative, at least some, to some degree, there was a normal human being in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and one who cared about the country and cared about something other than himself. And so you know, my story was, okay, he's got to get better. What is wrong with him? Why, why hasn't he gotten better? What the fuck mm -hmm. is wrong with him? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is going on here? Yeah. And it was, um, and then it's like, oh, I, 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 can't, I can't bear this. I got to keep my mouth shut. I'm just not going to worry about it. And I couldn't. 
I couldn't. I couldn't. And then I, you know, then it was this this quest to figure out well, what it what, what it was. And there were people who had already figured it out. And I started reading about, you know, what people had said about him. You got you the know, DSM. That's right. The psychologist and the psychiatrist, because there was something up here. It was up in his head. There was something wrong with him. And I wanted to know what it was. And then everybody else, I thought everybody else would want to know who it, what, yeah. what it was too. Yeah. And then if I pointed it out, everybody would say, yeah, damn it, that's it. <laughs> and it was like, no, we don't want to hear it. Everybody became like this. They, co they, they covered their ears. They covered their eyes. We will see, hear no evil, see no evil, and speak no evil about him. And that, it became, you know, and that's how we ended up in the cultish situation that remains today. And it's why his, you know, uh, you talked, you, you opened up earlier about how um, he wasn't repudiated. Well, he was repudiated. He was repudiated. He just wasn't repudiated by a section of the po of, of the populace that will not look, listen, and speak about the things that they many of them know to be true. And so that's the problem. And but but you know over time it was like what what, what do you do about this? And I I totally underestimated how. People, I, I just always thought there would be a point where people said, this is enough. This is enough. Like, you know, a large critical mass of people, not the 4% we talked about peeling off for the Lincoln Project. And then, I, you know, it never, ha never quite happened, but he, you know, he lost by a substantial margin. And then I, you know, on January 6th, I thought it would happen. And it did to some extent. He, he lost, Republicans mm -hmm. lost a lot that a lot day. Yeah. But it was never this total and complete collapse that I thought would happen at some point. If you keep pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding, even if nothing's moving, it's, it'll be like a crack in a bridge that's not fundamentally stable. Yeah. Okay. It's fine. You can drive trucks over it one day and it's, it doesn't, you know, it seems like it's sturdy. And then one day, boom, it comes down. And that's what I always thought would happen and it didn't happen. But, you know, it's crumbling. There's no question about it. And it's not a bridge you want to be on. Some of the most emotional and touching moments um, for me over the last year have been the times I've talked to real voters, um, engaged citizens like Rita Parker, who was a supporter and uh, we had her on the podcast. I spoke to her last summer and by the end of it, she had brought both me and our producer to tears um, with her story. Uh, so we, we, four of us got a lot of attention for taking a stand and for doing it loudly and doing it fiercely, but so many more people did it quietly. And I wonder if you can talk about some of the people you've been able to meet and talk to over the last year, um, a couple of years who were moral rebels. Sanderson says, who stood up and said, no, Donald Trump doesn't represent who we are and what those people have meant to you. One of the things that I think people miss about politics all the time is that the party leaders and the elected representatives get all the attention and they get, you know, that's where that's, they get the quotes in the newspaper and the press are covering them. But what fuels politics in America which is the same as saying what fuels democracy in America are the people, are the millions and millions of Americans 
in this last cycle, the record number millions of Americans who engage in the election process. And um, if it was if it was not for that, then Donald Trump would be president today. Obviously, right? It's it's about the votes. So who are those people? Where do they come from? Uh, what brings them? What is their story? Like we forget sometimes that politics is supposed to be about problem solving and not problem solving for the lobbyists and the big corporations and the folks who, you know, you know, want tax policies so they can pay less on their billions of dollars, all of that sort of thing. Our country is, is made up of this extraordinarily diverse um, population of people who are parents and grandparents, who have children who um, have disabilities, who are taking care of elderly parents who are dying, who are trying to um, launch and and run their own small business, you know, their their dream of, of owning their own business. Um, young people who want to get uh, an extraordinary education for good inspirational reasons, who want to go out and make the world a better place. Uh, you know, we, and, and, Every single one of those people struggle in some way. We all do. We all have a struggle of some kind. That's what makes us human. That's what, um, it's also what connects us with people that are different from us. Like we all, we all have these, um, you know, shared values and shared struggles. And that's what I think politics today is forgetting or has moved so far away from, um, you know, one, I think it was Mike said something earlier that, or it might have been, no, it was you said something about um, realizing that the Republican Party is really not about principles and a platform. It's about victories. It's about winning. That's what the Democratic Party is about, too. That's what political parties are. They exist to win elections. So it's incumbent upon all of the rest of us, all the millions of us out there to understand that and to, you know, make our choices with party affiliation or on one, you know, one year to the next we vote for with that knowledge, with, you know, through that filter. And I think that, um, you know, I got to spend a lot of time last year on LPTV doing that uh, um, Vote for America and the whole point of that show, on every single show, we spoke to non-party Americans, people who are not engaged in the party process, sharing their struggles, sharing their concerns about Donald Trump, sharing their, um, you know, the 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 conflicts that they were living with within their families because of Donald Trump. You know, all these different things, and just they were just so grateful and so relieved to have a place to talk, to tell that story, to be open, to be part of the conversation, to feel like they were being heard. And so, you know, again, that is where politics has failed slowly over the last many decades. And and maybe to some degree, politics has always been this way, right? I came to politics much later in life than most political professionals. I was in my 40s when I got involved and first ran for, for Congress. And I came to it with, I used to say, I used to worry that I was naive. I don't think that I was naive. I think I was just sincere. I came to it with the belief mm -hmm. that politics could be an opportunity um, to give people a voice, to to you know, a lot to to help 
underserved populations, um, you know, disengaged populations to have a voice, to have an influence, to, you know, to go to our center of government um, and to have an impact. I grew up in a family that was not at all political. You know, we did not sit around the table talking about politics, much less have parents or siblings or anybody who were engaged in politics. But what we did talk about a lot in our house was right and wrong, Hmm. you know, just simple right and wrong. You tell the truth because it's the truth. Stealing is bad, not because you might get caught, but because it's just wrong. Like it's simple, basic, what should be shared values and that's what that's what the Republican Party has lost. That's what separates the Republican Party at the moment, at least, from the Democratic Party. Although, you know, I'm sure we could get going on Democrats and in, in you know in 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 uh, you know short order as well. But they have abandoned the idea that some things are just wrong, so you don't do them. They have they have. They have not just reached the point, but they have fully and openly and publicly embraced the idea that it's about winning no matter what it takes, even if it means lying to voters, even if it means lying to each other. That's what happened. I don't know which one of you brought up the NRCC polling. Kevin McCarthy and the leadership of the Republic Party, Republican Party, you know, a couple of weeks ago, stood in front of the entire Republican House caucus and lied to them all. They withheld critical information from their own polling about how unfavorable Donald Trump has become amongst their voters in their districts. And there's no, where's the outrage? None. There's none. Because somehow they've convinced themselves that anything is okay, as long as it's leading them to some kind of a, a victory on election day. Yeah, well, the, the the apostasy now yeah. is the yeah. is the outrage. Yeah, right. Because you had spent four years trying to defend or rationalize or ignore what Donald Trump, how he behaved, his behavior, his lying, and and everything else about him. So you had to whitewash that. Yeah, and you had to, had to again. They had to whitewash January sixth. Yeah, and anybody who brings any of that up, I mean, yeah. if those pollsters who did that slide deck yeah. had put that slide in there, they would they would have they would have been risking their contracts or their jobs. And if you keep speaking out about January sixth, out you go from leadership. I want to use this as a segue to zoom out. Um, from Someone say zoom. <laughs> zoom? <laughs> uh, to pull back. And now focus on the Republican Party and less so about the 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 horse race of the day to day that we're seeing right now. You mentioned Kevin McCarthy and the polling and the caucus. Um, Mike, um, I want to turn it over to you to talk about how the schism in the Republican Party, which George and Jennifer just sort of teed up for us, what the future holds for the organization as an electoral victory seeking entity, which is what parties exist to do. We've established. Can you frame that by explaining the changing composition of the democratic party? More white collar workers are moving there. The reinvention of the Republican party, uh, to be the attempted reinvention of the Republican party, be more of a blue collar, uh, working class and what the demographic shifts foretell in all of that. And, and, 
I'd like to use the you know this backdrop of of the January sixth whitewashing as the device to 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 look at those things. There's a lot there to unpack. I know, but you're up for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's important to understand that what's happening to the Republican Party is not just a Republican phenomenon. It's a social phenomenon. And it is also – the split is also very clear in the Democratic Party, the American left as well. Um, And really what I think it's a function of socially is – we are seeing this kind of rising populism and populist rhetoric on both sides of the aisle that is eerily similar. So where on the left you will see an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders talk about big banks and big oil and big plastic, you're now hearing Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz talk about big tech and big Hollywood and then big government. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both they're both responding to the public's desire to hear essentially anti-establishment rhetoric, anti-establishment talk. There's a loss of faith in institutions. Now, the Republican Party has decided that what it's going to do in order to win victories is to overperform with white voters, increasingly with white voters, specifically white non-college educated voters. And the college education divide is the single largest demarcation point in the Republican Party. It's not gender. It's not geography. California Republicans are really not any different than West Virginia Republicans, any different than Texas Republicans. Right. It's the same demographic with the same sentiment. And the collapse or rise of registration is basically the same. Mm-hmm. That's important to understand. But what we had always targeted as a, as a practical effort during the Lincoln Project um, was a very small percentage of these numbers. We knew that identity is the driver at this time in American history. And to peel off a very small segment of the electorate would, uh, first of all, that was all that was possible to get. We were never going to get 50%. We were never going to get 30%. Right. It's just not going to happen. Right. That's the, not the nature of what is driving this coalition. In fact, Donald Trump got 74 million votes. Right. And Republicans down ticket did quite well in the largest, highest turnout election in American history. That's something we need to be paying attention to. It's telling – the data is telling us something. And so this divide, this college education divide, which we also found – and this was the first time I had seen this in my professional career – these college-educated white voters were also not responding to economic issues. They weren't looking for a capital gains tax cut. They weren't worried about free trade or or you know what, what Wall Street was doing or not doing. They were driven by cultural issues. Yeah. And that was the most remarkable finding that we were seeing in the data. And in fact, Stuart Stevens at one point in the stretch when we were making final decisions said, Mike, if you had to go with one route to win this race, do we focus on the economic issues or do we focus on the cultural issues? And immediately I said, the cultural issues. And that was the first time I've ever said that in my entire yeah. career, yeah. ever. Yeah. And the because reason- up to that point, it's- it's the economy. It's always the economy with these voters. Yeah. They'll put up with all sorts of other stuff as it relates to the culture. But what they want and they're voting Republican for is ultimately an economic issue, an economic concerns, pocketbook issues that were driving them. That is no longer the case. And this schism is going to continue to get larger and larger and larger. Okay. Mm-hmm. So as the culture changes, the dividing line in the Republican Party is increasingly those that are saying uh, – I'm college educated. I'm going to do fine in this job I have. My family's doing okay, could be better. Things are very volatile out there. But I will not be a party that defends the Confederacy. 
I will not join and vote with people who support the Confederate flag or who believe that George Floyd wasn't murdered. Yeah. Um, And that is increasingly going to be that break. Now, the intensity of the Republican base that does believe we should be protecting the Confederacy, that does believe George Floyd was, you know, what what was really wrong about that situation, um, that group is going to continue to drive the Republican Party for probably another 20 years. Now, on the the American left, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, the American left, what you have is something very different. The non-college educated base of the Democratic Party is overwhelmingly Latino and African American. And the college educated, kind of the, 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 the cultural elites as they were derided as in 2016, have a very different set of issues that drive and motivate them. They tend to be those cultural issues where college educated Republicans are starting to move towards, even though they disagree with the economics. Right. The challenge for the Democratic Party, and this is where we start to talk about the balance of power, is non-college educated Latinos and non-college educated African Americans are not going to work in coalition with non-college educated whites because of those same cultural issues. Right. Does that make sense? It becomes a very tenuous coalition. It becomes altogether. not only tenuous; it becomes a, 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 a um, it's in conflict with one another yeah. because what the the left is hearing is build a wall, and what the right is hearing is Black Lives Matter. And neither of them wants to work in coalition with each other because of those issues, even though economically 90% of those issues they right. would agree with. Right, right. And so this cultural war, which we are very much in the in a hot cultural war, it's it's, it's on. not cold I mean, anymore. We've we've dragged Dr. Seuss and Potato Head into this thing, right? <laughs> I mean, it's going. So it's, you know, those issues will continue to animate the Republican base. Yeah. The reason why Fox News is running those things is because it's creating a cohesive base that is rejecting the cultural change everywhere else. And that is all that is left in the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Not only have we, the Republicans lost credibility on all of these issues about smaller government and taxes and debt, it, it doesn't care about those issues anymore as a matter of winning. doesn't need to. doesn't need to. It doesn't need to. At least in the short term. Yeah. And I expect, at least at this point in time, with just the facts that we have right now, the Republicans will do quite well in the midterms. In fact, they'll probably pick up 13, 15 seats, depending, of course, on what happens. And take the House. And and take the House. Yeah. And so as a result, I think what we're looking at is this conflict that is going to divide America continually between essentially the haves and the have-nots, people who are optimistic about the future and feel they can thrive in the new economy, those that are pessimistic and work in old economy jobs that are increasingly paying less money and shrinking in number, and those that are comfortable with the cultural changes in America and those that are not comfortable with the cultural changes in America. Yeah. So the pessimists, the evangelical, and I say this not as a derisive term towards evangelical Christians, but evangelical Christianity is really a rejection of modernity yeah. as much as it is theological. Yeah. So when people are asking, yeah. why are all these evangelicals following Donald Trump and he's nothing like Christ? The reason is because he's rejecting yeah. cultural change. Yeah. And that is much more of an animating feature than a common Christian theology. Because it's countercultural. It's countercultural. And that's a really important point. And I'll end on this. Yeah. Sorry about the diatribe. We've, Mike and I have had lots of long conversations about this the last couple of days, and I wanted I wanted to bring that into this. Yeah, so, the Republican yeah. Party is now a countercultural movement. Yeah. When I joined the Republican Party in the late 80s, it was kind of the establishment party. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay? Yes. And now the left, which used to be countercultural, 
has dominated the media and academic academia. It is now the culture. Yeah. It is the driver of culture. Yeah. And the Republican Party has identified itself as the countercultural pinpoint to all this dramatic change that we're witnessing right now. Yeah. So it doesn't need an ideology. Right. It, it has abandoned the principles and philosophies of conservatism as I've known it in the post-World yeah. War II era. And it's basically said, we're going to stake our future on potato head. Yeah. We well, are going to stake our claim on Seuss. Which is a proxy for we're going to stake our future on power. On power right. or the maintenance yeah. of power maintenance so long power. as we can preserve that rejection by holding enough of these people who are rejecting this change, yeah. cultural change, yeah. this move towards modernism. Yeah. I hate to use the word progressive because it has political overturns, yeah. but it's just a trajectory towards the right. future. Society is going to change. Humanity is marching forward. Humanity is marching Always. forward. And right. those that are rejecting it or not comfortable with it, whether it's demographic, whether it's cultural, whether it's economic, are all gathering into a tribe. Yes. And that is what is driving and animating the Republican base. And it will yeah. be with us for yeah. the better part of our lifetimes, yeah. but it will ultimately work itself out. So. Given that backdrop, I really want to hear from each of you, Jennifer and George, about the fundamental question which many people are asking now, which is, and, and it, it's unanswerable, I think, but whether the party can be reformed, whether the Republican Party can be reformed. And I should note, I've left the party as of after 2016. I no longer identify as a Republican. I don't know if anyone else here does. You, George, do you still identify as a Republican? No, I, no. I left the party in March 2018. Uh, Jennifer? I left the party as well. Mike? I, I remain a Republican. Okay. I, we're going to dig into that. That's <laughs> we're going to have but, that conversation. Yeah, but, um, but, but, what I, but what everyone is asking is, A, whether the party can be reformed in some way, whether it should, and if so, how. And I know that on this question, on this, on, around the table on this question, there's going to be a diversity of opinion. So I'd love to start with you, George, to think- well, uh, I don't, I don't think it can be reformed in it, it, at all. I mean, I think that – I mean, for the reasons that Mike has explained, I mean, what holds the Republican Party together now are things that really don't relate to conservatism as a – as an economic or, pol or political philosophy. It doesn't – mostly – for the most part, it doesn't really re relate to anything involving um, governance. I mean that's why you know that's why we're talking about Dr. Seuss and we're talking about Mr. Potato Head, and you know if we're talking about I don't know the racial stuff, Black Lives Matter. I mean, we're, are they really what are, what are they going to do? It's like we're we're going to we're going to um, pass laws that require cops to kill people. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't it does right. no it doesn't yeah. translate to anything. Yeah. It's simply you know it's it's basically just extending Fox News to our politics and, and and trying to drive up ratings and get betting people to vote for things that don't necessarily result in any policy that actually affects the way people live their lives. It's 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 virtually it's almost it's it's a kind of nihilism actually. Yeah. And what what we and for me I don't think there is any end game. Yeah, I don't think you can fix that from within the party. The question is can the Republican party hold together enough with this splintering off of what Mike described, you know, the splintering off of the of the of the non-economically driven, you know, two non-ideal economically driven pieces, mm -hmm. one much larger and focused on resisting cultural change, the other accepting of the cultural change, whether there's some enough there to keep this going. I mean, maybe maybe in a midterm and off year election, and and given and given the the the, the, 
the way that um, um, congressional districts are drawn, yeah. um, that may result in control of the House. But I don't, I don't know how, and that's why I'd like to just keep yeah. having Mike talk, is, how this goes into the future with the demographic changes that yeah. are happening. Because you, you listen to ba- – basically someone once told me about Fox News that um, the – you know, it's, it's, this, it's basically the same cohort that's been watching it since the 1990s and it's getting older. Yeah. And the Republican – I think the Republican base skews older – Oh, okay. I'm decidedly. Decidedly. <laughs> and, you know, that's and, – and, and the biggest – one of the biggest things that happened in 2020 was the youth vote, which was overwhelming for Biden. This can't – this is they, – they've they lost by 7 million votes. It was close only because of the vagaries of the Electoral College. Um, you're, they're not appealing to the people who are not driven – who, who aren't they're, they're most people the, the cultural change is going to happen whether the Republican Party likes it or not it's yeah. it's been going on for decades yeah. and it's like it's almost like they finally woke up to it and said well stop even though basically you can see some of this happening in the 90s and 2000s and 2010s and it doesn't go anywhere yeah it doesn't it doesn't if even if you consider politics to be something about it's all about winning it, the numbers don't add up yeah and that's sort of what I wonder. And I, I, yeah. I wanted to ask, I kept thinking, yeah. I wanted to break in. Yeah, and I know yeah, you yeah. told us not to talk no, over right. each Please. other. Yeah, but I wanted means. to break in and ask, Mike, what's what's the percentage of Republicans today who fit into these categories? Is there is there a category of people who are kind of going both, either way? Like, because I don't really like the Democrats. And and how, you know, the 4% peeled off. Mm-hmm. How much more has peeled off since January 6th? And how much more could peel off after that? And then you have, the obviously, these demographic changes because people die. And they're not really bringing in. They can only bring in so many new voters who are who are who are you know low low propensity voters. You you, you know you can you can squeeze that um, fruit for a while, and then it stops producing anything. So where does it? How do these numbers? I'm trying to get a sense of the of the of the quantification of it. Well, I am too. <laughs> because well, that's why you're here. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 you, you look, you characterized it perfectly, and it is that's exactly the way I think to approach this. And and what I will say is this: uh, California and California's experience gave us a pretty good roadmap of the future of what is likely to happen here. Uh, when I look at the demographic numbers, and I look at the registration numbers, and I look at the voting trend lines, and what the precinct uh, and statewide results look like. 1994 in California looked a lot like 2016 in California. And what we're starting to see now is this hitting of overdrive of um, these new demographics, younger people specifically that are far more diverse, overwhelmingly voting. And this is an important phraseology here, phrase, against the Republican Party. They're not necessarily voting for the Democratic Party. I mean, that's the way they're voting, but they're not compelled by the Democratic Party as much as they're overtly rejecting the Republican Party. I can relate to that. And now that gets into <laughs> negative partisanship, and I am going to get to the answer to the question. Negative partisanship is, and it also part of the reason why I remain in the party, is vote, people are, are driven more by what they are against now than what they are for. Right? A lot of what's driving and motivating, especially young people as Democrats, is that they're against the Republican Party. People are against Donald Trump. They're against the party of Trump. Doesn't mean they're necessarily for the Democratic Party or what it's espousing. It's a lesser of two evils argument. 
But to your point, and again, this gets to the Mitt Romney, Liz Cheney, like where does this break off? How much is it? There, it's from what we can discern, the amount of Republicans that are likely to just overtly reject the party's direction over the course of the next twenty years sits at about between five and twenty percent. It's not huge numbers. It's kind of personally disappointing, but that's a tectonic shift. Yeah, in a party that has not won all but one of the last eight general elections right. nationally. And so what the party needs to do to maintain itself as relevant nationally is to overperform in states that have a higher than average number of non-college educated white voters. And curiously, these are increasingly states like the Great Lakes, mm-hmm. the Midwest. Uh, on the, uh, in the East Coast, it's New Hampshire and Maine where there are working class white constituencies mm-hmm. which have been trending more Republican uh, over the past few years. And – Curiously, or this very curious to me, I think it's fascinating, it's the South where new economies are being built. Charlotte, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, Maricopa County, Arizona, Dallas, Austin, Houston. All this sunbelt will ultimately and it's very quickly, rapidly becoming the new base of the Democratic Party based primarily again on the cultural demography of the country. Young educated people are moving out and into those areas because – they're growing and because they're nice places to live. They're nice, nice places, places to live with a quality More affordable of life. places to live. And they're also birds of a feather flocking together, right? They're going for the cultural life that these atmospheres are presenting. And so this divide is also creating a break between rural America and more urbanized America. The problem and what allows the Republican Party to persist and continue to persist again for probably two decades is because of our state – because we have states, we're not, California is not, our counties, you know, it doesn't matter. You vote statewide. Even though California is very segregated geographically, as is the country, the Electoral College will still allow for a potential roadmap if enough states overperform enough for Republicans to get to the 270 mark. It is still possible for Republicans to be competitive. The dilemma is the way they get there is through cultural issues which is why they're only talking about these issues. But they also have to run the table. Like really, yeah. they have to play I'm not, I'm not making a prediction. I'm yeah. not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying this is what they're doing, right? <laughs> right. Well, they got and, no other, yeah, they can't got play no other the choice. Onion, they and, no choice. And they're no longer viewed as a credible messenger to pivot beyond that. So if you reject those ideas, if you reject where the party's going, as we know, there's no room for dissent. You're either with us or you're against us. So if we stand up and say, I don't like where the party's going, they say, well, then, then you're out of here. Liz Cheney, you're out of here. Yeah. You know, which Mike the, Madrid, get out. Which is contrary to <laughs> well, the doing that to traditional yeah. model, the common sense, logical model of politics is, okay, we got your base. What can we do? What can we add on to that That's platform? exactly right, George. The very first lesson I ever learned in politics, right. what can it's we a game addition. of addition. It's addition, right? not, not subtraction. subtraction. And, and, and Donald Trump was the, pro, you know, the perfect progenitor of that because he did doesn't want to make an argument. He can't make an argument because he doesn't have the brain cells right. to do it. Yeah. But he can't bring himself to make an argument to people who might reject him. He simply wants it to be adored yeah. to, say, slake his na- to, to yeah. slake his narcissism, which drove people away and now has created for an entire political party this model of, of winning, which is – by Basically, winning right. by subtraction, yes, which that's right. logically subtraction. does not work. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> Only the Electoral College allowed. Right. And it was the first time a politician won by subtraction. Yeah. He said yeah. it perfectly. And that's, yeah. that became his recipe right. for success. And that was a low, you know. And he's forcing it onto the party and the party's swallowed and, the hook. And that was he's a not low forcing it onto the, Wait, wait, wait. He's not forcing it onto the party. The party is openly and willingly embracing it. Donald Trump lost. He's gone. Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, the whole, the whole shebang, you know, the, every, all, all the state chairmen, they could make a different choice. They're choosing this. You know, you asked, Ron, uh, can the party be reformed or brought uh, Sure, it can be. Of course, any person, any entity can be reformed. But the first step is they have to want to be. Mm -hmm. And the Republican Party does not want to be different than what it is right now. Um, you know, traditionally, the highest elected person in the country uh, from your party is the leader of the party. So Trump was president. He was the leader of the party. Trump lost. He's gone. They can make any choice they want to now, they are choosing lies. They are choosing, um, they are openly choosing authoritarianism. The Republican Party voted to over, knowingly voted to overturn what they knew was a legitimate election. That's authoritarianism. That is a conscious, strategic, intentional choice by the Republican Party. So it's not that they can't be reformed. They choose not to be. Yeah. And when we talk about young people, you know, I, I used to say this all the time when I was chairman, um, that, you know, as, with all due respect to all those voters who are over 65 or over 70, um, they are not the future of the party. Yeah. The voters who are 22 and 34 and 40, I mean, that's the future of the party. And when I look at my kids who are all right of center one way or another, a couple of them tend to be more libertarian than they are actually conservative, things like that. Um, it, 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 they, they really are the living example of what you're talking about, Mike, with the culture war. They are never going to vote for a party that openly defends the Confederacy, they are never going to vote for a party that continues to um, campaign on dog whistles about racism, um, about sexuality, LGBTQ issues, and um, you, you go the you know building the wall, all these different things that the Republican Party has openly embraced, and to this moment choose you know chooses to build their future on. There are millions of right of center young people who want nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. That's why there is not an, a, an extended, a long-term future for what this Republican party is. But there's a, but there, there's a, but you're, you're absolutely right. They're making a choice. They're making an egregious moral choice. They're making an egregious political choice and they're choosing. They, they could do things that they don't want to do. They could. They could follow Liz Cheney. They won't do it. They, you know, and but they don't feel like they're. They have a choice. That, that they don't feel like they have a choice because they've created a monster they can't control. There's yes. one in Mar-a-Lago, and then there are millions and millions yes. of them throughout mm -hmm. the country. Yes. They can't right. get off the beast now. Right. That's. Key right? to exactly. They, they don't feel like. And, and they you thought hear, they could ride hear, the tiger. You hear Lindsey Graham saying the other day, he's saying 
we there's no fu- we the Republican Party has no future without Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like what he it, means. It, he's a, it, you know, it's, this sounds like the, the the what 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 some narcissistic abuse victims yeah. Um, yeah. Um, are, are saying. Yeah. But it's more than that because they've created they they've created an appetite, a market for this stuff, Bingo. and 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 increase the polarization that Mike's been talking about, and and how do you turn that off? Okay. They can't turn it off because the, and and they're afraid to. If they try to turn it off, they become ostracized. Somebody, you know, somebody uh, they, right. they get their own Mar- Marjorie right. Taylor Green in their district running against them. You can't them. get in front of the bus so, now. Right. Like, they yeah. can't. They can't turn it off. So that is exactly exactly where I want to go next because you're right. They they could choose. They could choose something different, but the reality is the money drives everything now. I hope you've enjoyed the first part of this special two-part series. You can find the second part of this episode exclusively on Politicology Plus, and you can subscribe right now at politicology.com. In the second half, we talk about our experiences and emotions that shaped our actions and our individual and collective decision-making. We also dive deeper into the future of American democracy of democracy as a viable system and how to repair and rebuild the institutional guardrails that failed us. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And if you haven't yet, make sure to follow, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.